The United States has decades of experience and invested trillions of dollars to protect our country from the conventional threat of war. But as we near possibly the most consequential presidential election of our history, are we prepared for an unconventional threat? The power of the president is enormous. I have the absolute right to declare a national emergency. The founders, they balanced in favor of giving the president that kind of ability to face emergencies, even understanding that a badly intentioned president might abuse those powers. To unleash the full power of the federal government in this effort today, I am officially declaring a national emergency. People tend to support presidents acting dramatically. Uh, and to that degree, the presidents will continue to do so. But I'm the decider, and I decide what is best. When somebody's the president of the United States, the authority is total. And that's the way it's got to be. Donald Trump has a secret. It's the same secret held by Barack Obama, George W. Bush, Bill Clinton, and every president going all the way back to Eisenhower. In Washington, D.C., a city riddled with leaks, whose main currency is the exchange of information. How is it possible the secret has been kept for 64 years? One probable answer is that the presidents of the United States don't want you, the Congress, or even the Supreme Court to know they have a system in place where they can effectively suspend the Constitution and rule as a de facto dictator. If that sounds alarming, it is meant to be. We all should be alarmed. In this episode of Unconventional Threat, we're going to explore what we know and what we don't know about Pete's Presidential Emergency Action Documents. For the past four years, Liza Goitin, the co-director of the Liberty and National Security Program at the Brennan Center for Justice, has been working to reveal what secret emergency powers these PEDs give to the president. Under the National Emergencies Act, uh, the president can declare a national emergency just by signing his name to an executive order. And then that declaration triggers standby powers that are contained in what we discovered was more than 100 other provisions of law. And we cataloged all of those laws on our website, along with all the different times they had been invoked in the past. So if you look at these powers, you know, I was struck by the fact that, that many of them really did seem uh, quite narrow and reasonable, at least on their face. Um, but then I was also struck by the fact that some of them really seemed to me like the stuff of authoritarian regimes have the right to do a lot of things that people don't even know about. Gary Hart served as a U.S. Senator for 12 years, and Hart was a member of the post-Watergate Church Committee that investigated abuses by the Central Intelligence Agency, National Security Agency, Federal Bureau of Investigation, and the Internal Revenue Service. Even with those credentials, he only recently learned of the existence of the presidential secret emergency powers. My first job out of law school many years ago was with the National Security Division of the U.S. Department of Justice. And I have been in and around national security and intelligence issues for over 50 years. And when I am told by respected authorities, in this case, the Brennan Center for Justice at New York University Law School, that the president has secret powers, which, as this president has said, 
no one knows about, my ears perk up and I want to know what those powers are. And the best indication is that they include the power by the president when he declares a national emergency to, in effect, suspend the guarantees of the Constitution, including rights of speech, of assembly, the right of habeas corpus to know why you're being arrested, and the list goes on. And if the president, any president, declares a national emergency, these powers may enable him, in effect, to follow a blueprint for dictatorship. How could secret emergency powers be used to create a dictatorship in the United States? Don't we have rule of law and judges and courts and Congress and lots of protections? How could this possibly happen? Well, that's the question, and we don't know. When I learned in April that these secret powers existed or are reported to have existed, I started canvassing friends of mine who had held senior government positions in various administrations, former secretaries of defense, former national security advisors, former secretaries of state, and a surprising number of them replied to my inquiry that they knew nothing about these secret powers. I'm still waiting for anybody to explain to me why powers that can only affect the rights, the constitutional rights of Americans should be kept secret from those Americans. There is no explanation for that unless we want presidents to be able to take our rights away by themselves. Keep in mind, these are emergency powers. The current president has declared in the last three and a half years, seven national emergencies. It's hard to imagine how a weapon so powerful that the president can wield in his sole discretion has been kept secret from the American people and from their leadership. We asked Senator Gary Hart how we even know if PEDs really exist. Apparently there are enough people who have been close enough to the center of power, namely the White House, National Security Council, the Justice Department, Office of Legal Counsel. Those are the three hotspots that they have let it be known that there are these powers. Here again is Liza Goitine. What we know about PEDs, because they are so secret, we know through descriptions in other official documents, FBI memos and, and the like. And according to those sources, PEDs up through the, the 1970s uh, purported to authorize some pretty scary stuff, purported to authorize martial law, uh, unilateral suspension of habeas corpus by the president, not by Congress, as, as the Constitution provides, uh, the detention and roundup of people listed in an index of subversives that was maintained by the FBI, uh, warrantless seizures of property, censorship of the news. Because they're classified, they are nobody who has had authorized access to them is allowed to say a single word about them. Now, that doesn't usually stop uh, information from leaking. In Washington, D.C., we see that happen. Uh, and so it, it really is, to me, pretty remarkable that even though these documents have been around since the 1950s, none of them has ever been leaked. I mean, that's, um, that's pretty extraordinary. That's why we haven't heard anything about them from former presidents or any, any former officials who worked with those documents. If they spoke publicly about them, they would be putting themselves at great risk. This is what makes me nervous. Again, a lot of things make me nervous, but 
the fact that we know so little about the content of current keys. So, so we know much more about what was in them up into the 1970s, but we don't have those sort of official sources of information since that time. And we do know that, that PEDS undergo periodic review and revision. So it is a complete question mark what these documents contain today. And as far as that's concerned, I want to point out that as of at least 2018, during the Trump administration, these documents were under review and revision. Let's take a minute to recap. First, the president, any president, can declare a national emergency. And during that emergency, the president has the power to invoke powers that are inherent in the office of the presidency, but aren't spelled out anywhere in the Constitution, in any law, or in any regulation. Second, we only know what those powers are after the fact, after the president uses them. Third, the only people who know what those powers are today are President Trump and a small few in his inner circle. We all grew up being taught that the United States has three co-equal branches of the government, the executive, the judicial, and the legislative. PEDS, Presidential Emergency Action Documents, and the Presidential Secret Emergency Powers sound like they throw the whole concept of checks and balances out the window. Mark Medish is president of the Messina Group. Mr. Medish is a founding member of Keep Our Republic, and he served as a special assistant to President Clinton and as a senior director on the National Security Council. Mark explains the political theory of a unitary executive. The president enjoys emergency powers that are delegated to him by Congress under Article I of the Constitution. So Congress is expressly delegating some powers to the president in cases of emergencies like national disasters and the like. These are supposed to be limited powers. This president has also claimed to have so-called Article II powers. Article II covers the presidency. The claim is that there are inherent powers to declare emergencies that are not delegated by Congress. He has gone so far as to claim that he has more powers than people know, secret powers, possibly absolute powers, including the power to declare martial law without checks or balances. And this, again, is something that has gotten the attention of myself and, and colleagues at Keep Our Republic and other commentators. So I don't understand. Where would the president get secret powers from? Just inherent in being the top guy in the United States? You talk about Article Two of the Constitution. What's the basis for these claims? Have they been used by other presidents? And again, how could they be used in connection with this election? The notion of inherent powers is a somewhat mysterious and opaque one. It, it really doesn't fit within the conventional understanding of the Constitution, which we believe is a system of limited power and separation of powers and checks and balances. There is a, a theory called the unitary executive theory that asserts that a U.S. president is almost like a monarch of old what our Republican system was supposed to replace. Yet the view is that somehow the presidency of the United States is really like a monarch, and the monarch enjoys near absolute powers in times of national emergency. So that, that's where the theory has arisen. Probably the most famous case of a declaration by a U.S. president of absolute power before Mr. Trump was under Richard Nixon, where Richard Nixon said at one point in an interview that 
he felt as president, he actually could not, by definition, violate the law because he was the law. So it's sort of like uh, the divine right of kings or l'état c'est moi, I, I am the state. That's the theory anyway. Uh, uh, it's, it's a bold theory. We, I don't think it's a, it's a good or sound reading of the Constitution at all, but it's out there. Legal scholars in the Federalist Society, for example, have entertained this idea. The Attorney General, William Barr himself, has talked about it. Uh, Dick Cheney, the former vice president, used to, to talk about it, it being this unitary executive who has unchecked powers. Barr used the very interesting phrase that the president has illimitable police powers. Illimitable. He wrote about this in his, what I would call his job application for attorney general. And it was an exposition of the unitary executive theory. It's a very interesting choice of words, illimitable. He didn't say limitless, which it's related to. Limitless means very expansive, without end. Illimitable means it can't even be checked. There's no accountability. It's an extraordinary claim. And it has led some scholars to conclude and some lawyers including Alan Dershowitz, who was the president's lawyer in the impeachment trial, to conclude that Trump believes he can declare martial law across the whole country. Now, I think this would come as a big surprise to most Americans. So people who know Donald Trump well, including his personal attorney, Alan Dershowitz, are on the record saying Donald Trump believes he can declare martial law. Under what scenarios might he justify martial law? Bandy Lee is a psychiatrist who specializes in public health and violence prevention, and she's the author of The Dangerous Case of Donald Trump. I can say right now that the conditions are laid out for violence no matter the election results, and those are uh, instigated by the president, for example, by stating that the election will be rigged if, he's, if he doesn't win, questioning any result that would uh, not announce his victory, uh, that he will put down any kind of public uprising or protest as an insurrection, and he will put it down with force. He's psychologically maneuvering the public to come to accept these things, uh, things that were previously unacceptable. Uh, he makes acceptable through his uh, psychological manipulation and essentially conditioning of uh, not just his followers, but even those who uh, oppose him. They feel exhausted and, and bullied and pressured to acquiesce. And this is all something that we can expect from uh, his uh, the severe mental impairments he has and the influence that he has. Media executive Tom Rogers was executive vice president and chief strategist at NBC, where among his many accomplishments, he created the cable channels CNBC and MSNBC. Some have suggested that uh, Trump would like to see uh, violent protest as a basis for being able to show how uh, perilous a position the country is in that allows him to exercise certain executive branch emergency powers and makes this whole uh, set of issues ones that make it uh, very clear that the president needs to take charge and uh, drive to a result without letting people uh, usurp his power, which he will characterize as an illegitimate usurpation of power, which uh, legitimizes his 
a show of force. Colonel Larry Wilkerson served as Chief of Staff to Secretary of State Colin Powell. We asked Colonel Wilkerson to forecast what outcomes we might see in the 2020 election. Uh, the most dangerous would be an outright clear loss and then the declaration of an emergency and the I'm not leaving and I'm calling my base to the streets and FBI will tell you that his base owns about 300 million of the 400 million guns in America. That is a really dire scenario. If he refuses to leave, Congress has no police force. Congress has no police force. What do they do? Do they turn to the Pentagon and say, get that man out of the White House? And then he says to the Pentagon, protect me. Don't let them take the duly elected and serving president of the United States out of the White House. So you think we should, as we look at 2020, not rule coup d'etat out of, out of the picture? Very sophisticated, not looking like a coup d'etat, yes. And uh, do you think it's possible that if Donald Trump loses the popular vote by millions of votes and loses a electoral college vote if it were to be counted, that he might decide to stay anyway? That's one of the high severity, low probability scenarios being looked at. High severity because it destroys our republic. We are at least possessed of a few democratic tendencies. We've destroyed a lot of them, but there are still a few. One of them is the ballot box. We asked Colonel Wilkerson if the current political climate reminded him of any other time in American history. I say this time resembles 1850 to 1860 more than any other time in our history. What we have is a tyranny of the minority right now, and we have three corrupted branches of government. We haven't had that since 1850. You know what we got in 1860, and what we're talking about is a situation that could produce what we got in 1860 all over again with different clothing and manifestations, of course. It's what we talked about with regard to violence and potential violence in the streets with this election. But what's brought that about is this resurgence of a very small minority, not now motivated by slavery, though a lot of them are racist. It's the same power phenomenon. Here is Representative Jim McGovern, the chair of the Rules Committee in the House of Representatives, speaking about Donald Trump. I, I tell people all the time, all my life, I have always admired uh, and respected the office of the presidency. I've always respected the occupant of that office, even when I have strongly disagreed with them. But it's different now for me. The difference here is that I, I think Trump will, will want to hold on to power no matter what. I mean, I, I think he's willing to sacrifice people's right to vote. I think he's willing to sacrifice anything and everything to hold on to power. We've been hearing from very serious, accomplished, knowledgeable people who have legitimate concerns about the risk of an extraordinary abuse of power by the current president or by future presidents of the United States. Here is Josh Geltzer, executive director of the Institute for Constitutional Advocacy and Protection at the Georgetown University Law Center. I think we all need to do what we can from the outside. Well, what can we do? Well, we can rely on the media, as they have done quite effectively over the Trump years, to try to call out what, what they see and what they hear about rule breaking, even law breaking. I think those of us who litigate can be prepared to litigate uh, if it's appropriate. Uh, I think we can also look to the campaigns uh, in, in involved, or uh, I suppose in particular the, the Biden campaign, uh, obviously uh, scrutinizing that which the Trump campaign is doing or which Donald Trump is doing 
to abuse and exploit his position as president, even as he is also candidate Trump. Um, and I think we have to hope that the courts remain a place where law and the right view of the law can be vindicated. And I don't always like the pace at which litigation moves, although election-related litigation tends to be something of an exception and to move relatively quickly because elections have deadlines and timelines associated with them. Those other institutions, the media, the, the litigation, the courts, uh, and perhaps even, even public advocacy, by which I mean peaceful protests, uh, if, if things reach a point at which there's something concerning to protest. I think that's what people have to try to use as a set of checks on an executive branch that at times seems to be willing to abuse the extraordinary powers bestowed on it. And here is Senator Tim Worth. The president now has a whole suite of powers which have been granted to him, but about which the Congress knows almost nothing. There have been no votes in the United States Congress. There have been no hearings in the United States Congress. These powers have slowly but surely accreted to the president uh, over many, many years. And our concern is that these powers can be very dangerous if improperly used by a president. Our worry was that if these powers are used uh, during the counting of an election, they can skew the results of that election. So we tried to get after that, understand it. We found that very few members of Congress, if any, know anything about these at all. Uh, so what's the best protection against them? It is what we call a citizen's firewall. That's all the citizens of the country, as many as possible, millions of citizens, becoming aware of the fact that we're going to have a very troubled time probably after the 3rd of November. We're going to have an extremely uh, difficult election, and we have to be prepared for that. Once again, here's Liza Goitine. Senator Markey introduced legislation called the RAIN Act that would require disclosure of these documents to the relevant committees of Congress. And that's really the, the, the key first step here is that uh, Congress needs to look at these documents and see what's in them. Uh, because certainly it's possible that over the years they have been revised in such a way that they no longer try to authorize martial law or, or do any of those uh, illegal things. Uh, but we need to know. And then Senator Markey's bill was essentially incorporated into the Protect Our Democracy Act, which is a, the major democratic reform package that was introduced in the House by, by key committee leaders in the House. Um, so it, it is very much on, on the minds of, of members of Congress. What do you think Congress um, should do in 2021 to get the risks posed by the secret presidential emergency powers addressed, as well as the risks of the statutory grants to presidents in the 123 statutes that you and the Brennan Center have documented? I think that Congress should pass the Protect Our Democracy Act. And I think that's, then Congress should take a look at these documents. If it appears to Congress that the documents don't need to be classified, then I think Congress should um, start the process of obtaining their declassification so that the public can see them as well. If the documents purport to authorize martial law or, or, or things that Congress thinks are either illegal or inappropriate, then I think Congress needs to pass legislation to prevent those actions from, from happening. Um, on statutory emergency powers, uh, there is legislation that was originally offered by Senator Lee, a Republican in the, in the Senate, and it has 18 Republican co-sponsors 
that would reform the National Emergencies Act by requiring presidential declarations of national emergency to terminate after 30 days if Congress didn't approve it. Peter, as a journalist, you've been all over the world covering different types of conflict, including some of Latin America's dirty wars and civil wars. Do you see the moment that we're facing in the United States as having things in common with what you covered back then in other parts of the world? You know, that's exactly the sense that I had when I was in a very cavalier way, like any American would in the 1980s and 1990s, covering, for instance, Latin America, traveling to Brazil and living in Brazil, where there was a military dictatorship for 20 years, or in Argentina, where people had to flee their country and tens of thousands of people were killed, extrajudicial trials, imprisonments. And, you know, I also remember, of all places, being in a bus in Mexico, traveling with the official presidential candidate of what was called the Institutional Revolutionary Party in 1982, uh, a man named Miguel de la Madrid. Uh, and I uh, was interviewing him on this, this campaign bus. And I said to him, how do you think you're going to do the, in, in the election? And he looked at me and smiled and said, I think I'm going to get around 74 to 75% of the popular vote. And um, I remembered a couple of months later when the election results came out and he got 74.3% of the vote. Of course, this was a party that had been in control for 50 years. He knew because he was controlling it. All of the people in the countries that I, that I covered craved American democracy, craved American elections, and, and looked to us as, as a place of hope and of, of independence. And people actually flocked to this country when they couldn't find redress in their own countries. Now to see this happening and to see that it can happen here is, is shocking, confounding, and, and stomach-churning, especially as we approach the election. Well, we have no reason to believe today that President Trump is going to invoke emergency powers. It's a risk, but we don't know that it's going to happen. and It may never happen. One of the things Americans can do to make sure that our system of democracy continues is they can get out and vote. Voting is calculated in the United States at the local level. So we do have some bottom-up protection that's real. When I was investigating Iran-Contra back in the 1980s, I remember hearing from wiser, older people on Capitol Hill that the idea that the White House could be carrying out a secret policy of arming guerrillas to fight a government, that they could be undertaking secret negotiations with other countries to provide weapons to such fighters after Congress had forbid it, was ridiculous. It couldn't possibly be happening. The wiser and older people knew that these things couldn't be happening because they hadn't been authorized by Congress. They hadn't been paid for by uh, congressional authorizations and appropriations, and therefore they couldn't exist. But it was taking place, and it was taking place because people within the White House, secretly authorized by the president in an oral finding, and that was President Reagan in an oral finding, had set up elements of the government that were both not part of the government in any formal way, were operating under the authority of the president in secret. That was an absolute mess. 
it created a huge scandal because it was such a mess. You know, what we are learning now, and I sometimes in, in my most optimistic moments, pull out the, the only silver lining in, in what we're experiencing, which is that we've been confronted with the fact that that American democracy has depended on the good faith of our leaders. And it doesn't seem to be good enough anymore. But the fact that we've seen that may be a good thing down the line. Uh, the government is there to serve the people, not the other way around. And in the case of these presidential emergency action documents and secret presidential emergency powers, as well as the ones we know about, there is some considerable risk uh, that somebody could reverse our traditional values and try and rule by power and by fiat rather than by the consent of uh, every American. There are an awful lot of people in all kinds of places who are in a position to exercise power collectively to respond to abuses of power uh, by the executive if they happen. Remember, we're not helpless if bad stuff happens. We can respond. We can respond constructively. We can respond without um, violence and reclaim the country if it goes off course. Many of us have simply the basic redress of voting, but we all at some level see that voting is the first step towards standing up and declaring what we believe in. We just have to keep recognizing that we must stand up for our values wherever that leads us. Values matter, and we do have a set of common values in this country, which includes respecting one another, uh, respecting decisions being made by voters, trying to make a more perfect union in the end, where everybody has both freedom and opportunity, where the country is safe and stable. That's the common work that we all do over a course of a lifetime, and what we have to keep our eyes on when we go through times of difficulty. Subscribe to Unconventional Threat on your favorite podcast app and sign up for breaking news from Unconventional Threat at unconventionalthreat.com. Unconventional Threat is a project of Keep Our Republic and is produced by District Productive. Unconventional Threat is the creation of Jonathan Weiner, Peter Eisner, and Paul Woodhull. Our executive producer is Peter Ogberg. Our associate producer is McKenna Chester. Keep Our Republic aims to discover, highlight, and help to prevent an array of extraordinary threats to the integrity of the 2020 election and transition. To learn more, go to keepourrepublic.com. Jonathan Weiner, Gary Hart, and Tom Rogers are members of Keep Our Republic. Tim Wirth is a co-founder and member of Keep Our Republic. To find more great podcasts from District Productive, go to districtproductive.com. <laughs>